Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces. I'm here with Stephanie Carvin in my office at the Faculty of Law, University of Ottawa, close, I suppose, to the Rideau Canal, as opposed to above the Rideau River. It's open now. It's open. It's been open for a while. We're uh, back in Canada. We uh, are a uh, bit jet lagged. We spent, so jet lagged. So jet lagged. We spent uh, nine days in Israel touring the regions that raise uh, security preoccupations, like the Gaza envelope and the northern border, and 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 actually having a very intense experience, a sort of movable feast of seminars and discussions about the Israeli-Palestinian issues and also Israeli politics and law. Uh, it was a fascinating undertaking and a thanks to Ben Wittes of Lawfare fame and Matt Waxman at Columbia University Law School for inviting us uh, on that mission. I won't be forgetting it anytime soon. No, it was, it's really moving. It's really, it's, it's amazing in the days after how much it stuck with me. And, you know, I think you made the comment as we were, I think, perhaps in the West Bank, you'd said, we need to bring Canadian newspaper reporters here because our problems are not very complicated in respect to other parts of the world. And certainly that's true of that particular situation. Uh, and what, what was great, maybe we'll talk about it. I'd love to bring uh, Tamaj Juno back on the podcast and talk about the Middle East and maybe help process some of the things that we saw. But it, it really, it's really, as you say, is stuck with me in the, uh, in the last uh, couple of days. That and the jet lag. So, you know, <laughs> so if we're going to Lower than normal. We don't, we're not entirely sure. <laughs> you can put us at 2.0 speed. Right. Okay. So what are we talking about today, Stephanie? Okay. Well, there's four things on the agenda. The first is judicial screening and uh, presumably why that matters. That's, that's your department. <laughs> okay. We're going to talk about the uh, Crimes Against Humanity and War Crimes Act. And because this has come up recently with respect to the possibility of charging some uh, Islamic State fighters who are Canadian with that crime as opposed to a terrorism crime. So it's an interesting discussion. C-59, our, what do we call it, our founding member? Yeah, or sponsoring it, member. Sponsoring member. That's what they call the, these kinds of issues on National Security Law Podcast, our sister podcast in the America. There's some amendments. It's back in the house. I haven't quite pulled out all my hair yet, but we can get to that in just a minute. And then finally, if it does get through, what does it mean getting into force? And I just thought, oh, hey, I was ready to bake the cake. And I've <laughs> talked about this on the podcast. I was ready to bake the cake. But no, no, there's things that have to be done afterwards that you're going to talk about. Right. All right. So a lot of discrete issues, some overlap between the last two, but let's let's jump right in. So the reason we're talking about guidelines for pre-appointment background checks for candidates for judicial positions and to federally appointed judicial appointments is I just today received from an ATIP request the actual guidelines themselves, which had been alluded to. And you may recall that we talked some time ago about background checks for those who are appointed by governor and council to... To, to the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. Right, and right. also and also to uh, post as, as ministers. Right. Well, there was an allusion there to, to background checks for judicial positions. And I'd never seen those. And in fact, my understanding was that judges were never security cleared. And that actually remains true, but there is a background check. Okay. Um, and so it's... Uh, I'm not going to get into the details here, but I, I found it uh, interesting that amongst the for uh, background checks that are undertaken for judicial candidates, there's an RCMP police records a check, as you might expect, for uh, a criminal background. There's uh, a check by the Canada Revenue Agency. Uh, this goes taxes, right? right? So this goes to compliance issues with uh, respect to the Income Tax Act. A financial inquiry with a credit bureau um, and also with the Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy in terms of the whether the candidate has been bankrupt or insolvent. And so this presumably would go to their, their propensity for financial blackmail. Yes, yeah, or so bribes. Or bribes, right? Yeah. And then finally, an enhanced indices check by the Canadian Security Intelligence Service pursuant to Section 12 of the CSIS Act. Usually that would involve probably just searching databases to right. see if their name comes up to be like, are they in contact with 
I don't know, a dead terrorist group or right. something, or uh, perhaps a foreign adversaries or something there that you would have to worry about. But so there you go. I mean, it's it's an interesting little uh, addendum to our conversation about security clearances. So at the end, they don't get a security clearance per se, but prior to appointment, there's this, this vetting process, if you will. Uh, there's also a pre-appointment checks for chief justices and justices of the Supreme Court. Uh, these would typically be people who are already judges, and so uh, they would have had the initial pre-appointment uh, background check. Subsequently, when they're elevated from the from trial level to appellate level or to the um, chief justice level or the Supreme Court level, there's a there's sort of a supplemental updating. Uh, of the uh, the validation, the pre-appointment background check. Uh, and that's done by the Department of Justice. But there's a caveat. In so doing, this process preserves judicial independence following a judge's initial appointment to a judicial appointment. So there's more sensitivity there. If you've already got a, a judge who's sitting as a judge, to have the executive branch do a vetting? Uh, well, I was going to say, that's kind of an interesting thought because, you know, okay, sure, they're not doing anything while they're, you know, before they're there. But once they're in that position... There's, is there any subsequent vetting? I mean, for example, security clearance in Canada has to be renewed every five years. Right. Um, but there's none of that here. No, no, just upon their elevation to a higher level. Interesting. Okay, so that's that. Uh, what's next on our list? Crimes Against Humanity and War Crimes Acts. All right, okay. Happy. So Stuart Bell has a story today as we record this on June 6th uh, about the RCMP investigating the prospect of bringing... I think the story talks about crimes against humanity charges against uh, persons who participated with ISIS in Syria and Iraq. And I'd also assume that that includes war crimes, which is a separate offense, both of which are found in a statute called the Crimes Against Humanity and War Crimes Act, which was introduced in the late 1990s in Canada. And that sparked a bit of a discussion back and forth on Twitter with our colleague Leah West and others about whether this would be a viable option in terms of prosecuting these people as opposed to terrorism charges. Now, I'm not sure it's opposed to terrorism charges. It is possible that you could have a person charged with both crimes against humanity. Yeah, you can commit a terrorist act during an armed conflict. Right. No, it adds to the complexity, but these are going to be inherently complex for the most part anyway. So so the issue is, is that a good thing? Should should these people be investigated for crimes against humanity and war crimes? My, My gut instinct is that a lot of the conduct undertaken by ISIS unequivocally constitutes a war crime, targeting civilians, for instance, massacres of various sorts. And in the context of the Syria-Iraq conflict, it would also be a crime against humanity. Why? Because it's a widespread and systematic attack against the civilian population. So willful killing, for example, is part of a widespread and systematic attack against the civilian population. That would be a crime against humanity. So the, the, the definitional requirements uh, for war crimes and crimes against humanity would likely fit some of the conduct with which we're familiar from that, that theater of hostilities. The issue is always going to be question of evidence, right? And so, well, this was going to ask because to me, as someone who, who let's just say I'm, I'm being team pragmatic, what's easier to charge someone with participating in terrorist activities? Which you know, I don't know how many times we've talked about yeah. the intel to evidence problem on that particular issue versus um, committing a war crimes right. act. Because I mean, presumably, like if you if you are looking, if I'm if I'm think, trying to think this through, and believe me, I'm thinking slowly because of said <laughs> jet lag issues. It's not just the fact with participating in a terrorist group. It's you have to show that they did something and also that they had membership in a particular organization, correct? Well, not so much membership, but rather that they no, mem- they, no card, they had the intent to participate. And by participate, we mean enhance the capacity of the terrorist group to engage in terrorist right. activities. Right. So so there is an evidentiary so requirement there. there. Right, yeah. right. So now some of that might be 
uh, demonstrated uh, through evidence that's accessible to the authorities here in Canada. And so traveling like for the purpose of participating themselves. in a terrorist group is itself yeah. a crime. And if you've got a social media or other footprint prior to their departure, for example, about why it is they were traveling and what they intended to do, that's probably enough to make out your case. So, uh, and when you say easier, would it be easier? I said, y- y- yeah, it would be easier in the sense if that information's available, it's low-hanging fruit, uh, but there may be cases, and I'm not foreclosing the possibility, where you have better quality information about what they did on the ground. And if what they did on the ground was, we talk about it in this podcast, right a boom, left a boom, quite often, right? If they acted, acted, they engaged in an act of violence while in Syria, and you've got cogent evidence of that, then it, it, it would seem to be a question of undercharging if you simply went after them for traveling for the purpose of participating in a terrorist group. Because remember, most of those terrorism offenses are really geared t- towards the preparatory acts prior to the actual manifestation of violence. But once you've got a manifestation of violence on the ground, as has been the case domestically when we've charged people with murder rather than terrorism offenses, uh, because you know the murder offenses are available and they engage to murder and there are fewer elements to prove, it, it may well be ca- the case that war crimes and crimes against humanity fit the situation better. Again, assuming you've got the information. There's also, it seems to me, an important, can we say, symbolic uh, attribute here. If a person engaged in an extrajudicial execution uh, against a civilian a target or a person who was hors de combat and committed a war crime or a crime against humanity, it would seem, and we had evidence of that, it would not, it seemed to me, to be an appropriate step merely to charge them with participation in a terrorist group. If it's a war crime or crime against humanity, which we have not had a terrific record in terms of actually pursuing such charges, we really should, if the shoe fits, uh, proceed with those sorts of charges. Now, again, I, I, you know, I qualify my comments to say that it may be the rarest instance when the evidence is of that cogency, but if it is available, I would not, I would not want to be reluctant in terms of bringing such charges. Uh, I, I, part of the role of criminal law is denunciation. And crime against humanity and war crimes, these are very important uh, expectations in, in, ter- in terms of foiling uh, this behavior. And, I, if the, and again, if the charge fits, then I, I think it's incumbent upon the RCMP to so charge. Because it's a pretty grave situation. It's, a, it's very grave. It, it, and so imagine someone who executed another human being and you charge them with travel to participate in a terrorist group. Right. So, I mean, to be fair, so Kyle Matthews, who's um, he's a CJI fellow and he's he's been around on Twitter and uh, he came up with a paper last September. Uh, he basically proposed this as an option. And mm-hmm. I was pretty critical of it at the time, not in the sense that, hey, at least he's putting out ideas and I'm all for debating ideas. I, I just was trying to figure out, OK, well, how does that actually solve any of the evidence problems that we no, would it have? It doesn't. Right. Uh, so it's not any lower. It's not no, any easier. No, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think there are, there are different things you have to prove. You don't have to prove the... So in a, in a classic terrorism offense, you would typically have to prove the, the motive requirement right. that's associated with the definition of terrorist activity. We've talked about that. Political, mm-hmm. religious, ideological uh, a purpose, a whole or part undergirding the uh, activity. Uh, with with an ISIS, ISIS is a listed entity, right? It's listed by the governor and council as a terrorist group. Participating with the terrorist group is itself an offense, and so... There, but that's not a war crime. Yeah, so so in other words, I, you wouldn't really have to get into the weeds if you're participating with ISIS to demonstrate the sort of the intent requirement, as you would, say, with a Toronto 18-style uh, situation where you had sort of an ad hoc group that was coming together. You'd have, you'd have to prove that that ad hoc group had uh, as one of its purposes the, the uh, terrorist activity with ISIS because it's listed already by the Governor Council. That's sort of baked in already. Um, and so... 
the terrorism of travel offenses, I think, I think if we have evidence of them, they will be fairly straightforward. Uh, my point is only that crimes against humanity and war crimes, if we do, and this is the big if, if we do have evidence of conduct on the ground that meets the definitional elements of these two offenses, then I think they should be charged with, with uh, those offenses and not simply fall back because it's easier on the terrorism travel offenses. Oh, no, I, I would Or, or char- charge the alternative, right? I mean, they're not, again, not mutually exclusive. Yeah, and I think I think that's the key point. It's not one or the other. You could potentially do both if you had enough evidence. And I mean, what these individuals may have done is just so particularly egregious that yeah, I, I'm I'm all for it. I guess I, I guess it's just a couple of things. One is don't think war crimes are an easier way to get around the evidence problems that we're going to have. Yeah, and I don't think you're saying that, but just in case people are thinking that. Uh, the second thing is that I also don't think that war crimes really gets us past the larger issues was that we which is that we need better legislation in this area right we need improved legislation that makes it easier for Canada to charge these individuals for going over to these conflict zones in the first place whether it's a neutrality law whether it's an Australian style law yeah. something we need to be able to to do this so I think that's which the they're thing. moving towards in the UK yeah and I think um, that's I, I think the Australian model is the one that Canada. I mean, I, I don't know how it would work with our charter because you it's a very it easy. Yeah, I'll let you be the judge on yeah. that. No, I, I mean I, I think you have to be careful. So the, the Tories, the Harper government, proposed a system. Yeah. In the 2015 election. Absolutely. And but it was. But but then yeah. they added a lot of complexity, like a reverse uh, onus on the defenses, which you yeah you know the sort of who bears the onus in the defenses. Uh, and, and to what extent the defense is actually an element of fence. It's kind of a murky area, but... But I think that's just, in the Australian law. Um, you have to basically... You basically yeah, yeah. have to prove you were there for a legit purpose. Yeah, so uh, I get very uncomfortable when something that looks like it might be an element of the offense uh, is baked in and, and a reverse onus is placed where the, def- the defendant has to prove or, or not prove or dispel an element of the crime. And so they, they added complexity there, uh, which made it no less unwieldy than conventional terrorism offenses. And so they lost the, the virtue of a fairly straightforward, you were there, that's presumptively a crime. Enough. If we can prove that you were also not there for purposes of being a journalist or aid worker, then you, know, you, go, to crime, you, go, you go to jail, you know, regardless of whether you picked up a weapon or not. Um, and and you know, a lot of people are, are hostile to that idea. Some people saw it as a violation of mobility rights. Yeah, you have a right to leave the country, but you don't have a right to leave the country for purposes of you know, doing something violent. bad. Yeah. Right? So I mean, if anything, it would be a legitimate Section 1 justification of the charter. So I think there's, a, there's ways of massaging it if you did it properly. Right. And, and for about five or six years, I've, I've been advancing the argument that it is possible and probably desirable to r- ramp up our existing neutrality law, which dates from 1938. Right, it was it was designed for the Spanish Civil War. It was never really used, uh, and sits a bit, there. A bit late. There. It sits there as totally unwieldy, like a, some kind of a the equivalent of a legal appendix, right? Just a, a totally useless organ, uh, and uh, and it really could deserve some renovation. Yeah, I think so. So I think that's that's the thing. I think the war crimes issue is really interesting. I was initially hostile to it. I'm coming around to it, but I just I guess the reason I'm a bit hostile to it is it just doesn't seem to get us around the problems that we've consistently talked about on the podcast. Yeah, but you know my view that we don't want to elevate the intelligence to evidence conundrum as as being this insurmountable obstacle. And there's a lot of hard drives floating around in Syria and Iraq that are now in the possession of authorities. And so also apparently the New York Times. The New York Times, right. And so I, I, I'm not foreclosing the possibility that uh, the international consortium that's working on this on these issues won't be able to produce compelling evidence uh, of a sort that might usefully uh, be used in a Canadian court. It, it, there's all sorts of novel issues that will go into that. I mean, chain of custody, all sorts of stuff that will be uh, uh, interesting and complex. But 
one of the one of my fears is that we seem to steer away from complexity. We fear complexity, and so our law never develops, right? And so we're afraid to bring these these kind of cases for fear that there's a zero tolerance for losing them. But you know, frankly, unless we bring them, the law won't develop, and the jurisprudence and the experience won't won't develop in a manner that allows us to bring these more expeditiously in the future. One one quick footnote to that: um, it seems that there's there was some talk. I think Sweden was leading the discussion on potentially even doing an international yeah. criminal tribunal, but yeah. then. You know, if that happens, then, you know, Russia's going to want to charge, you know, uh, people that pretend to potentially we don't want to like the Syrian Democratic Forces or maybe the Kurds. The, Tur- well, the Turks would definitely want to charge the Kurds. Yeah. And then uh, America's going to want to charge Iran. And it's just going to be too difficult. That's complex. Yeah, it is complex because you <laughs> But so uh, you, there, there are such things as hybrid have- tribunals, right, that involve a local state say Sierra Leone and, yes. and then a UN presence. But, but you're talking about the involvement almost certainly of the Security Council, and of course there you're going to be concerned it's about It's so that. functional. Right. Uh, um, you know, but there is an international tribunal aspect to this. Those persons who are Canadian nationals, they are potentially culpable in front of the International Criminal Court, right, by virtue of their actions. nationality, even yeah. if the if their crimes take place geographically in a region where the state is not a party to the International Criminal Court. There is what's known as a complementarity jurisdiction. So the ICC would only take jurisdiction over Canadian nationals in circumstances where we failed to do so. Right. right? And we so, seem to be doing that. Well, but that's another <laughs> that's another reason for us to take a hard look at this, right? Right. So, and then just one last other footnote, because we had never talked about the Crimes Against Humanity and War Crimes Act on mm. the podcast. Yeah. So was this brought in to basically, uh, like, you know, I'm thinking late 1990s, we've signed on to the ICC. There's yep. all these different yep. um, pieces of leg- international legislation that are being put out there. Was that kind of what... Principally. But so we, basically it codifies all the crimes that are in the ICC yeah. Rome Statutes. Yeah. It facilitates our participation with the ICC. Now, we could have simply created a system where we just shuttle people off to the ICC, which is part of the of the act. But but we also updated our own domestic criminal law in terms of war crimes and crimes against humanity because what had existed in the criminal code, because we had these concepts in the criminal code, but they died a quiet death after the Supreme Court's decision in a case called Finta, which was a World War II era war crimes case where the oh. where the court set such a high uh, expectation in terms of, of the intent requirement that it was basically impossible thereafter to bring uh, war crimes trials. Uh, and so the government of the, of the day in, in the late 1990s used the War Crimes and Crimes Against Humanity Act to sort of update our understanding of these offenses in a way that was entirely compliant and consistent with the, how these concepts have been defined in the Statute of Rome creating the International Criminal Court. Right, because it operates on the principle of complement, complementarity. Right. Right. Yeah. You, you, we have the laws. We try them here. They, they complement what's our obligations are in the yeah. ICC. Okay. Well, one last point I'll make here is some people have been, have been look, combing through the criminal code and saying, oh, there's all these other offenses that these uh, people who worked uh, for ISIS could be charged with. Uh, the, the one very important wrinkle there is there's only a handful of offenses in Canadian law that are extraterritorial. That is that, that you can be charged for your conduct outside of the country. And so the two that we've been talking about are the most important in this case, and that is crimes against humanity slash war crimes, Which also, can be tried uh, also genocide, anywhere, really. uh, but, but uh, also terrorism, right? right? And so if you look at for plain vanilla murder or uh, other crimes, uh, for the most part, they're not going to extend to conduct that took place outside of Canada. They have to take place within the territory of Canada. So you really have a narrow subset of crimes that would be available here. Okay. Well, speaking of complex issues, C-59. <laughs> right. Um, we have the amendments. Do you want to go through that? I mean, I would cheer, but honestly, I just, I'm going to sigh. <sighs> Okay, so uh, as listeners know, on May 15th, the Senate reported from after its committee deliberations on amendments to uh, C-59, 
Those amendments were accepted on report stage through third reading, and now they've reported back to the Commons, and I'm not sure where it sits in the Commons. I've been I've been looking at the par- parliamentary schedule every day, and I don't see C-59 being considered a, in the in the Commons since then, so I'm not quite sure where, where it's, it sits. Of course, we're running out of legislative time, but at this point, I don't think it's going to die. I mean, it would be a catastrophe if it were, and we're so close to the finish line that that I think it'll get through. But but never never underestimate our ability to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Yeah, right? well, this would be a, quite a significant defeat. Um, so d- it's worth, though, because we've mentioned in the past that there were the handful of amendments that were made, but and we said we, they were largely unimportant, um, and I think that's true, but it's, I think it's worth just rehearsing what they are Yes. so that people understand what's at issue here. So, and for me, too, because I'm jet-lagged. <laughs> so, I mean, basically there are four, and, and so the first one is... And so this goes to the role of the intelligence commissioner. And listeners uh, who have been following this podcast or C-59 will recall that the intelligence commissioner is a new quasi-judicial body uh, who perform- that will perform a number of roles, one of which will be to review on reasonableness the ministerial authorizations allowing the CSE to engage in foreign intelligence and cybersecurity activities and circumstances where those activities might implicate uh, a reasonable expectation of privacy of a Canadian or otherwise violate Canadian law. All so right. let me put that in English. Yes. In other words, the Intelligence Commissioner will say yes or no to an operation where, say, the CSE is going to engage in an operation, but it might collect personal information on Canadians. Right. And you have a Section 8, right, under the Charter. See, I, this is rubbing off on me. I swear <laughs> to God, Craig. Uh, Section 8, uh, right, under the Charter to privacy. And as we've talked about many times, this is a this is an issue because increasingly the courts have have really kind of expanded what a search is. Right, and the fact that the CSE is not targeting Canadians and is only incidentally collecting this private information or a reasonable expectation of privacy information uh, does not answer the objection that uh, since it's foreseeable, na- given the nature of the international telecommunications and and electronic infrastructure, that some Canadian information will be swept up. The fact that you're not intending to target Canadians is not answer to the constitutional objection, at least in my view. And so the whole intelligence commissioner apparatus is designed to superimpose uh, a quasi-judicial official to play a vetting role that's not quite a warrant, but is roughly analogous to a warrant of the sort you would find if this were domestic operation by CSIS or RCMP. All right, so what happened in in the Senate? Well, um, as as you noted, the intelligence commissioner does a vetting. The vetting is on a reasonableness standard. The expectation all along has been that it's, and, and I was actually, you know, I had a conversation with people about this, that it's not sort of a veto by the intelligence commissioner. The com- intelligence commissioner may say, I don't think that this minister authorization is adequate. And then that's, of course, an invitation you for the minister. You haven't taken enough precautions right. or you so, need to do more stuff. Right. right. So the, the, that's another kick at the can for the minister, right? So it's not just it dies there, never to be resuscitated. What's happened? You just have to tinker with it. You have to tinker with it. And that's actually been made uh, express, at least in part, by one of the Senate amendments. And so there's an amendment that's added in relation to foreign intelligence authorizations that says that the commissioner may refer the matter back to the appropriate minister for reconsideration uh, and provide the minister with a description of the condition that would have to be added for the authorization to make it reasonable, right? So that was always implied. This has made it express. What puzzles me, and if, if I'm reading this correctly, that sort of caveat is added for foreign intelligence authorizations, but not for the cybersecurity side. Right. Which, which is weird, because otherwise, in, in, through the rest of the act, the, tr- the foreign uh, intelligence and cybersecurity authorizations are run in parallel. Um, and so that seems a bit puzzling. Uh, I'm not quite sure why that decision was made, assuming I'm reading this correctly. I have so many questions about the Senate, but, you know, 
That's so, for my therapist. So the next amendment really relates to this uh, conversation we've had about the speech crime. So recall that in C-51, there was this advocacy and promotion of terrorism offenses and general crime. Right, right? and everyone's been pulling their hair out about this. Yeah, so it's now rolled back to a conventional counseling uh, terrorism offense crime. And the concern has always been, well, is it broad enough to encompass the sort of more generic calls for violence, et cetera, et cetera? How emphatic does it have to be? You know, I, I've taken the view that it's pretty broad, as, as is conventional counseling. And, and, and the minister has said, uh, he, you know, I was there when he was asked in committee, you know, it, it, they fully intend it to be broad. Right. And, right. But the Senate apparently wasn't persuaded by that because they've added some caveats. And they've said that the council can exist whether or not a terrorism offense is committed. The accused counsels a particular person to carry out a terrorist activity. The accused knows the identity of the person uh, or the person whom the accused counsels carries out uh, the terrorist activity without knowing that it's a terrorist activity, right? So there's sort of like these added provisions and that language is carbon copied out of the instruction. Uh, And so there's an offense called instructing a terrorist activity in the criminal code. Uh, And I've always wondered why everyone was so preoccupied with sort of amping up the counseling offense when there was this thing called instruction that's sometimes been charged but not often charged. And I don't think we've ever tested the outer limits of what instruction is. So basically we're building a lot of redundancy in the criminal code, right? So you can be charged with a whole bunch of different things. I'm not sure this this proviso that they've added in the Senate really adds much to what was there in C-59, but, you know, Whether so or not, I mean, look, I mean, I, I'm not that offended by it. I think, um, like... I agree. Like, I mean, I'm going to take your word for it that it was good because I'm not the best person to say. I mean, at the end of the day, I think the concern was, and for example, the uh, Canadian Jewish Israeli Affairs uh, Committee, they had testified. They're they're worried about social media, right? So if like you're making calls to action, or if you're inciting, you know, if you're inciting anti-Semitism online and these kinds of things in such a way as to constitute violent extremism, but you don't necessarily know who your audience is, they're worried that 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 wouldn't count under the way that the offense had been structured before. Yeah. I'm not not sure if that's true. To the extent that that's reasonable or not, I mean, we can have that discussion. I'm just saying I get where they're coming from, and uh, it's it's not the most unreasonable thing, whether it's overkill or not. Um, maybe just like your nice, neat law books. Uh, well, I mean, I don't think it makes a difference one way or another, frankly. Right. So it is what it is. A third change. So uh, there's a four-year review uh, for the act, which is not uncommon. Uh, to have, it was to, like that in 2000, with the 2001 C-36, right, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's here a requirement that that review also include an assessment of the effect of the act on the operations of CSIS, the RCMP, and the CSE that relate to national security information sharing and the interaction of these organizations with the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency, the Intelligence Commissioner, and the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. So, you know, there's sort of a mandate that now has to be performed by the parliamentary committee that will look at it, that they have to consider this particular By all three or by one of the three? By the reviewing committee, that would be a so that would be the standing committee in the Commons or the or the uh, Senate okay. committee, and so they have to turn their mind to this issue, which they might have done anyway. But now there's sort of a requirement that they take up this issue. Well, it, there's but, worse things. Yeah, I'm not you know whatever. I'm not I'm not opposed to that. I think where that comes from is there it, there is kind of like I raise this in my testimony. Like yeah. there are burdens on the security agencies in this legislation, and very few of the agencies have been given resources yeah. uh, either in C59 or with C22 which was the one that actually stood up the committee of parliamentarians so i'm i actually am curious and hey look if the par- if, if parliament if senate whatever 
is saying we will force ourselves to re-examine this issue in four years, I'm not going to complain about that because I actually think it's good and healthy that that they do that. But I think it just echoes some concerns that that you know there may be some burdens here. This is it's not an easy piece of legislation. So how well have the security agencies coped? It, it'll be an interesting question to see if we have a podcast in four years right. <laughs> that we can turn to. <laughs> right. And then there's one more in terms of actual amendments. And this was this is actually a, a good save by the Senate, right? So this goes to the, the new statute that was created by the Commons uh, after the, during the, the Commons Committee hearings involving mistreatment. And so this would be the Minister of Directions regarding sharing of information and circumstances where it may give rise or be caused by mistreatment, right? So now there's a requirement we've talked about before that uh, those ministerial directions be that they exist, for CSIS, RCMP, DND, CSE, uh, GAC, that they exist and that they be made public, which is not an insignificant win. Uh, so this goes back to the Commons changes, because in the past we've had to rely on access to information, but in the more distant past, rely on access to information to get them. The current government's had a policy of proactively releasing them. So they have to exist, which is great. There's a reference in that in that statute that's part of Bill C-59 to uh, uh, entities being listed in a schedule, so the entities to whom the requirement of, for, to create directions have been issued, right? So you, you have to have a schedule and you list the deputy heads to whom directions have been issued, because it, it could be broader than simply, you know, the agencies I've mentioned. It could okay, be other well, government let's agencies. let's back this up for one quick sec. Yeah. When you say entities, who's an entity? So, you know, Public Health Agency of Canada. Okay. It may be well that they would be issued directions. And so the, their Section 4 of the new Act says there should be a schedule which lists the deputy heads, that is the deputy minister, of the agencies to whom ministerial directions have been issued. So you can look and you can see the, the agencies that are in the schedule and you'll know who's got directions. And so presumably you can cross-check so to, to see if the directions have been made public. Right. So the Minister of Public Safety gives directions to the CBSA. Right. That has to be in a list. And yeah. then you can be like, I think oh. CBSA is already a, a mandatory one anyway. But yeah. Literally but, pulling this. <laughs> right. So, so but, uh, you know, a Purby Council office. Right. Right. So the problem was that there was a reference to this schedule in Section 4 of the Act, but there was no schedule created. <laughs> oh, so created a schedule? And so they created a schedule. So it was a necessary save. Yeah. Okay, so if we look at this, um, so one, two, three, four, the role of the Intelligence Commissioner, um, I don't know what, like a B, um, terrorism charge. I'm going to give that a B, maybe B minus, we'll see. Uh, every four years, that wasn't entirely necessary at all, so... Maybe a, an A for effort, but like B minus for like stopping this legislation. And but I guess number four was a pretty good save. So yeah, there's it's a pretty a. good save. It's not that important a provision of the act, but it's hard to see how that provision should, would work absent the schedule that it refers any to. Should this have disrupted C15, like this, the passage of this bill? Or, or no, really I, I, don't gonna, I don't think it's going to. I don't think it's going to disrupt it. Not I'm not sure. Should it have? Yeah. Because I mean, now it, like they kicked it back to the House of Commons. Yeah, and so and we'll see. With, is any yeah. of this serious enough that? No. No, I mean, I, I mean, to finish your question, is it serious enough that the Commons would object? No, no, not the Commons would object. That it should have gone back to the Commons in the first place. Well, mm, I mean, the cleanup in terms of the schedule, it's like you kind of wish that had been caught at the Commons side. So that kind of cleanup can cause all sorts of conundrums if you don't do it. So yeah, it's just it's it's too bad that we're at the eleventh hour now. I, you know, I'm fully confident that this is, this isn't going to delay the the process, but it just it adds a little bit of ping pong, right? 
because it's got to go to the commons. The commons make it, it deliberates okay, when on When C fifty nine fails to pass, I can't wait to have the podcast where you just scream. I told you so <laughs> for like thirty minutes. That's all it's going to be. <laughs> no, it's going to be thirty minutes of it, and I'm just going to play it on a loudspeaker outside the Senate building. <laughs> Anyways, and then those new usher slash security guards can come after me. <laughs> um, and all they right. have. Let me tell you. All right. Um, okay. You're so, the pessimist. I'm the optimist. Right. All right. There are also I'm bad some cop. I think uh, we, we determined I'm the bad cop. You're the bad cop. Podcast. There are also observations this, the committee committee made. We won't go through those, but one of the observations is that uh, the Senate, the standing, wise owls observe something. Yes, the, okay. the standing, standing committee on national security in the Senate should do, uh, do a study on intelligence to evidence. So I'm, you know, what can oh, I say? look at the grin <laughs> on your face when you say that. Yeah. I wish you could see this audience. It's so good. All right, so we have uh, what about ten minutes left? Yeah, and, and so coming into force. Coming into force. So you wrote. Okay, I should say you. Um, if you haven't checked out our new Intrepid podcast blog, which is <laughs> cleverly named a blog called Intrepid, please do so. Craig has actually uh, written this up. So uh, just just to be clear about what coming into force means. So once once a bill receives royal assent, and the royal assent is that pro forma uh, governor general, the governor general's delegate blesses essentially, you know, nods or signs. It depends on the ceremony in question or whether it's done by paper. For real? Yeah. Um, what? Once, once royal assent is given, and it, and this is a perennial debate people have. There is no discretion by the governor in general or their delegate to deny royal assent. I mean, notwithstanding what the Constitution Act of 1867 no. says, the Constitutional Convention is that this is automatic. There's no discretion. Right. So, you know, Unless, royal assent is entirely pro forma. So Queen Liz herself could not fly here uh, in, in her royal jet and say, no. Every time there's a controversial bill, someone says, let's lobby the governor general not to give royal assent. No, unequivocally, the governor general not does not have that power. That would be a coup d'etat. Right. All right, so... The general rule, the default rule, if you will, in the Federal Interpretation Act is that upon royal assent, the provisions in what's now a statute upon royal assent come into force. That is, That means they're law, they're operative law. Of course, that default is displaced uh, sometimes on the text of the actual statute itself. And the statute itself may include coming into force provisions which establish different rules. And so there may be a rule that says that this provisions such and such come into force X number of days after royal assent. More often, it says, given provisions in the statute come into force upon proclamation or order in council by the governor and council, which is code for a cabinet authorization. And the reason for that is that sometimes you've got to do a lot of busy work in order to set up the apparatus, whether it's a regulatory apparatus or the administrative superstructure, that you can actually start using the act, right? And so here, obviously, you've got to set up an intelligence commissioner, you've got to set up a national security and intelligence review agency, uh, there's a whole bunch of work that has to be done in order to bring data sets and CSIS uh, Act uh, into into sort of an operative framework that would that meet the requirements of the Act. So there's a lot of work that has to be done. Uh, the regulatory work associated with the uh, redress system for the no-fly system on, under the Secure Air Travel Act. So uh, that means you might want to have a delayed or progressive coming into force. And sure enough, there are various stages of coming into force. Now, there are some things that will automatically be in force upon royal assent. And so amongst the things we've talked about on, on this podcast, the revised CSIS threat reduction powers, mm -hmm. as soon as the bill gets royal assent, those revisions kick in. Uh, the revamped Security of Canada Information Sharing Act, and recall we had a podcast on that with Sophie Beecher a, a couple of weeks ago, yep. that will kick in, mostly kick in, most most of the revamped provisions. From Skeeza to Skeeta. To Skeeta will kick in upon royal assent. The amendments to the criminal code, and so things like the slight amendments to preventive detention and peace bonds kick in right away. Right. Uh, on the other hand, some of the other stuff we've talked about, like the CSE Act, like the basically the entire CSE Act, 
uh, and the CSIS dataset regime and the justification immunity regime, those kick in upon proclamation or, or order in council from the, from the governor and council, that is the federal cabinet. And the obvious reason for that is, as we've mentioned just moments ago, many of the CSE powers depend on the existence of an intelligence commissioner, yes. right? Because the intelligence commissioner has got to be in place to do the review function. And so too, many of the provisions in, in the C-59 framework refer to the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency and mandate that that agency perform a certain mandatory review functions. If you don't have either of those bodies up and running, you can't make the system work, right? So the first stage is really to get those bodies in place. And so I would expect that the... Nizira or Nzira and the IC, the intelligence commissioner, will be up and ready to go. And then their acts will, will be sort of brought into force, come into force, and, and they'll be able to step into that role, at which time much of many of the other uh, provisions could be brought into force, assuming the other kind of regulatory work is done. And just to be super technical about this, because my colleague Phil Lacasse would be impressed, the even if parliament is not in session, yeah. these ordering councils can still happen. Right. They, you're, you're still a minister. Even when the writ drops, you're still a minister. Yeah. Now, it would be very unusual for them to do a whole lot of ordering council mm. stuff, I think, yeah. during an election, but uh, potentially um, right up to kind of the call, which I think we can probably expect sometime in September, these things can be passed. Yeah, well, that's that's an interesting issue. So f- the first point is... I didn't is, mean for it to be an interesting <laughs> issue. I was kind of hoping that was just a smart observation. You're right, but you raise an interesting issue, right? Oh, okay. So the... Uh, the reality is, and, and I don't think many people appreciate that, there's continuity in government, right? And mm-hmm. so it may well be that parliament has been dissolved. Parliaments are temporary creatures, right? Upon dissolution, the parliament disappears. It's gone. That's why we number our parliaments. It's not a permanent institution. It's a permanent building, but not a permanent institution. Right. The and executive, they do that in the states as well. Yeah. The executive, there's continuity in, in the executive government. You've always got to have a government, right? And so the executive, the prime minister is the prime minister until such time as the prime minister resigns, right? Um, and there are certain requirements in terms of resignation, but until such time as they resign, they're the prime minister, and upon which time you have another prime minister take office, right? And so we may be an election campaign, but the prime minister remains a prime minister. We have ministers who remain ministers. And so the ministerial conduct, in this case of cabinet, and so the cabinet remains a constituted entity and is free to uh, bring things into force through orders and council. Now, the wrinkle, the, the reason why it's interesting that we would have this conversation going into an election is there's this thing called the caretaker convention. Yes. And the purpose of the caretaker convention is to avoid that incumbent government from gaming uh, its use of, of, of the, the levers of government in a way that's advantageous to its uh, political prospects in an election, right? So you try to keep things as static as possible to create an even playing field between an incumbent, a party that's incumbent in government and the opposition parties who are now contesting an election. And so you're quite modest in what it is you do in terms of exercising the levers of government power. And so typically you wouldn't have a regulatory process. Um, and you know, bringing into force new institutions, you typically wouldn't have that. So it really depends on how conservative you are in terms of applying the, the convention here, the caretaker convention. My suspicion is that there'll be a huge push to get this done before the writ is drawn up and parliament is dissolved and the caretaker convention So we're going to uh, be looking in. at seeing this basically through June and July. Yeah, well, depending, I mean, it's it's really up to the prime minister to decide when the writ should be dropped. So, you know, it, it could be it could be September, but it could be a lot longer as it was in 2015, although I don't think anyone wants no, to live through that again. No, no, <laughs> So, yeah, I, I think basically we're talking about, you know, and, and it may well be that the... But, I mean, I think the other thing we should mention here, because, like, some... 
like civil servants, they don't just take the 30 days as the caretaker convention. I mean, really, we're not going to be able to talk to anybody pretty much from the end of this month. There'll right. be lots they, of they sensitivity. They take a much larger. Yeah, there'll be um, lots, lots of sensitivity because yeah, um, they don't want to influence the election. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, it te- the technical point at which the caretaker convention t- kicks in, uh, I'd have to check that. I, I think it really is a concern about during the electoral period. But you know, even in the Elections Act, we're sort of pushing out this idea of a pre-writ period, which will start in June, right? And so now the sensitivity, the envelope of sensitivity, is probably expanding. I'm just worried that we're going to end up doing pod size with my mom because <laughs> no one's going to talk to uh, us. Well, we should, you know, once the the electoral campaign is up and running, we should really talk about policy issues in the campaign platforms That's of the adorable. parties. That's adorable. You think there's going to be policy issues. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, it's me being pessimistic again. Is there anything else that we no, need to I discuss think, on I that? No, I think that's a lot, and we're almost yeah. at 45 minutes Oh, jeez. Well, okay, there we go. Thank you for listening. This was a good podcast, I think, considering that really we're about seven hours <laughs> behind where our body clocks are. Yeah. But that's that's okay. So so hopefully this was comprehensible. And then we'll be back with a pod site. Uh, looking forward to it, actually. It should be a great pod site. Uh, hopefully it'll be released next week. We may have a bit of a gap thereafter. There's some travel that's involved, but uh, we'll uh, try to be back um, by the end of June-ish, end of beginning June. of July. We'll maybe be Canada Day special, maybe. We'll get, get Amicus on the show. The <laughs> That'll be our pod site. Oh Amicus, the Supreme Court <laughs> mascot. So good. <laughs> All of, Does yeah, he so, talk or is he just go, Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, All right, tired. That's this it. This has got to stop. Thanks okay. very much, everyone. Thank you. Cheers. See you next time. <laughs>